Pastor Jacob, how does it feel to have won the bacon trophy? Sizzling. back 2024 men's breakfast and I love a full room of men this feels good it feels great feels great yeah you know what doesn't feel great my empty slot on my bookshelf because you have my trophy oh yeah it's been up there for uh what two you've two had it for now? an extended period of time it's been a long time you stole it at yeah. the end James Goodrich he took he did. it he did yeah which I feel like he should play for his father uh but he didn't do that so that's Discipline that needs to happen, Goodrich, <laughs> in your own home. Uh, but that's all right, because we are back, and look, we're excited to get you here and have you here this morning. Uh, we got a great series for men's breakfast all the way throughout the year, but uh, today is the kickoff, and it is a great morning to be here. So got a few announcements, but of course, we do have our bacon trophy game, which I will tell you about, because you got some paper on your table that you will need instructions for. And those that sit in the front row will finally get rewarded because many of the cool kids like to sit in the back. You're going to be at a disadvantage. So don't move now. I don't want it. It's too late. But just know that. Uh, but we got a few announcements that I want to share first. And the first one is uh, a Spartan race. And I feel like a hypocrite talking about it because I didn't do it <laughs> last year. But you did. I did, yeah. So I want you to go ahead and tell people why they should do the Spartan race. Tell oh, the man. guys. Yeah, you guys should sign up and do the Spartan race. Uh, honestly, it is a lot of fun, right? A lot of fun to get to go around San Diego, run around, have a lot of obstacles. Um, it was one of the first things that I did being a part of Compass, one of the very first events that I came to. 
got to know a lot of you guys through that, got to build some friendships. So, um, you know, you go through the ringer, you run a lot, you got to get in some cold water, do some obstacles, fail at climbing a rope and all the other things like that. Uh, but hey, it's a lot of fun, a really good time. You guys should definitely sign up and be there. Yeah, ditto. I agree. I felt the same way. Yeah. Uh, when I was up there. there watching us, taking videos like you were doing. I did. Yeah. I had to do it for the gram. That's so, right. Uh, I had to take pictures for it to let people know what was happening. So yeah. somebody had to sacrifice and do that. So I chose to do but that. But this year will be a different, right? This year is different. My arm feels better. You're good. And yeah, I'm ready Don't to go. be lifting any more cold brew. Hey, things, hey, you know? hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's office talk. We don't, we don't publicize how I got injured. Okay. <laughs> Cold brew is heavy every once it's in a while. It's heavy, yeah. It is, that machine. So anyway, this year is different because uh, we are opening it, opening it up to uh, women as well, so your wives can join you. If you need that support all the way through, then they can support you all the way through and run it with you, and kids as well. So if you have a child that is between the age of 9 and 14, we have a kids race for them. So the young ones can get into the two-mile race, which will be right before the adult race that we have. So all of that is available if you go sign up for the Spartan race. That will be April 13th and 14th, so you got some time to train and roll around in mud and get comfortable and all that stuff. Um, but it will be a great time. We'll go down there that Saturday on just the 13th uh, and then come back that, that afternoon. I think that's it with that. Yeah. Next announcement. Uh, we are, as you saw, the new lobby. How about that lobby? How's it looking? Look, looks good, great. right? Yeah. So there's been some uh, fantastic work that's been done on the lobby over the last few months. And so we just thank you for being patient. And we want to thank you for your leadership in your home, because a lot of what you guys are doing in your home and continuing to provide in a standpoint of, of, of offering and giving to the church has allowed us to do this construction project here and have this great lobby area that will be our new main entrance uh, when people come into our campus. And so we are going to have a dedication uh, service or after the service, March 16th and 17th. We'll end the service a little bit early. I guess I shouldn't say that because Pastor Mike is doing the service, but he said he will end it a little early, whatever that means. And we will go right outside, and we are going to dedicate that lobby uh, and pray for all the great things that we pray that God will do in that lobby. And so that will be a dedication service on the 16th and 17th, so hope you will be there then. But again, I want to say thank you for uh, just your generous giving to the church that um, has allowed us to be able to do that and many other projects that you see around campus as well. Um, and last but not least, uh, after our men's breakfast this morning, we are going to partner with the Fix-It Ministry. I sent that out on the email if you saw it, but I want you to stick around if you can. I know a few of you have to get out uh, right at 930, but if you can stick around, it's a great opportunity to partner with our Fix-It Ministry. As you know, Easter is coming up here in just a couple months, and there are a lot of projects that we have here on campus, and this would be a great help if we can have a lot of you men stick around and uh, help out with some of these projects that we have on campus uh, that will help us to get, wow, Mark McGill. <laughs> That's a whole pig. <laughs> Did you kill that pig? <laughs> Boy, your arteries are going to hate you. <laughs> yeah, take, take one from him, Nick. Take two. We got, we got a doctor. Some, if we can get a doctor sitting on this front table... <laughs> After he finishes that 17th piece of bacon, that'd be good. Yeah, we got, you can do CPR. I'm not doing CPR on Mark. That's your fault. All right. 
Uh, what were we talking about? Fix it. Let's fix, fix the church, not Mark. All right. Um, fix the ministry. So stick around. We'll give more details right after the service. Uh, but yeah, hopefully you plan to stick around. Even if you can give us just, you know, a, an hour of your time before you head out, that'd be great. We would uh, definitely appreciate that. All right. Uh, bacon trophy time. Let's talk about that game that we have going on. So how this game is going to start is everybody is going to be playing as with your table. That's how you're going to start, okay? So every table has a sheet with 10 blanks on it. You see that? So as a table, you're going to be playing together. So if you sat with a different ministry, whatever, uh, just you, you can sit with a different ministry. Here in just a second, we're going to pop on the screen that's going to have, you're going to see it. There's going to be emojis that are going to pop on the screen. And you are going to have to decipher those emojis and figure out what biblical theme or story or saying is based on that emoji. You'll see it when it pops up, okay? So you're going to work together as a table. So get one person that's going to write, and then everybody else is going to look. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on before we decide. So once it pops up on the screen, all 10 are going to come up at one time, okay? You have to get all 10 filled out and correct. Once you get all 10 filled out, you need the most athletic person at your table to bring it up here. That's why I said it's an advantage to be on the front row, okay? If you jump up on stage, you're disqualified. Do not get up on the stage. You just sit it right here, okay? All right, here, here's the second. Here's the second part of that. So we will take the first 10 tables to complete. The first 10 tables, they will move on to the second part of the, the game. So once we get to the second part of the game, you will send one table representative from that winning table, from the winning 10, up here. So we will have 10 people up here. And then there will be the second part of that, which will be questions, random questions. Some about Jesus, some about random things. Okay? So that's the second part. So first part, something's going to pop on the screen here in just a second, and you are to fill in all 10 all 10 have to be correct. We have the answers. If you're somewhere close to it, we'll give it to you. If not, we'll throw you back, and then you lose your spot in line, okay? You got? I think they get it. You think you get it? Yeah. If you don't get it, then you probably won't win, okay? <laughs> uh, just cheer on everybody else. All right. All right, so here we go. Um, one, more t one more time. And here in just a second, once I say go... It's going to pop up on that screen. If you got a TV, it'll pop up on your screen, too. You got 10 items, right? It'll say number one and then some emojis. Number two, some emojis, all the way down to 10. You have to fill them all out. Once you complete them all, and only once you complete them all, bring somebody up here, and they have to sit it down here, okay? And that's how we will grade who are the 10 correct ones, the first 10 correct ones. And then you will send a table representative, all right? So let's start there. We are going to reveal in, pay attention, five, four, three, two, one, show it. Yep. So think about it. These are themes. These are sayings. These might be a section. Pastor Kellen, did you make all these? I did not make all these. No? Okay. I'm not that creative. Yeah. <laughs> but they're pretty, they're pretty creative. You got to think a little bit. Yeah, no, that's good. 
Number nine just has a white square like that, and then a sponge, and then a coffin. I, I don't even recognize some of these uh, emojis. No, right? They don't teach this in seminary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, think about it. Everybody contribute at the table. Pastor John looks confused back there, too. This is good. Oh, we got the Jeopardy music. I like that. That's a good touch. Oh, we can pull out our answers. All right, just so there's no confusion, I'll give you number one. Number one is Genesis or Adam and Eve in the garden. There you go. That's the example of number one. All right, this is one. Here, why don't you check that one? See if we... Mark, can you throw me a pin while you're eating your 18 slices of bacon? Here, you want to fact check that one? Uh, yeah, you should. Jason. Uh, put somebody's name so we can identify. That's Jason Nations. Did he get it? All 10? All right, sit it. This is number three. Number three. Number four. Hold on, put your name, put your name, put your name. Put a name on there. Put a name on there. If I don't have a name, then it doesn't count. Whoever wrote in red, I don't know if I have a name. All right, hold on. Nope, nope, nope. This is next. Uh, uh, hey, 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 relax. This All right, Joseph three, Lopez table got four, it. Four, five. Nope, put them in order. Russell's up here. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All right, we got ten. All right. Nolan, come up here for me real quick. I need your help. No. All right. These two got it. All right. Joseph and Jason. Can you, can you help him grade? Can you help him grade? Just to make sure. No. Down here. Down here. Down here. Down here. Just check it. If it's somewhere close. All right, we got about 15 up here, so I'm assuming there. Let me see. Garden of Eden. Yeah. Yeah. Lot's wife denies Jesus. Sleep. Yeah. Worth more than. Hey, Jimmy. Jimmy, you got hey. one wrong. Where's Jimmy? <laughs> My group. No. That's your group? Ryan, Ryan L., you got one wrong. No, Jay, you don't get to skip. Ryan L. Oh, oh, it goes to the end, to the end, to the end. Ryan L, you have number eight wrong. Okay, stop. That side. Put them down there as you get it. Adam and Eve. Yeah. No. Who did? Team Sua got one wrong. Russ, Number nine Russ is wrong. got one wrong. Number nine is wrong. Team Sua, everything else is right.
That's fine. That one right here. PL's table is right. Steven, Sean, Fred, John, Jeremy. Jeremy, you guys are good. You got it right. No, nah, it's fine. You can take it. Separate. This one was wrong. Uh, whitewash too. Yeah, that one's fine now. That one's fine now. Yeah, he corrected that one. That was the only one that was wrong. Uh, Jack? Is someone Jack's table? I don't know. Here, put it down there. Put it down there. Down there on that side. Jack's table is good. Tweed right. table is good. Deja Daniel lies in. Lots of white. Use a separation of sheet. That's six. Sorry, six. I know. I'm talking. Uh, Joel, yours, number eight, is wrong. Were you really at the top of this? Huh? You really at the top? Down here, down here on that eye. All right, Boswell, you're in. Boswell table, you're in. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We need three more. We need three more. Yep. Noah's. Richard Lee and Josh Loomberger, number eight is wrong. Number nine is wrong. Link table number nine is wrong. Davian, Davian, yours is wrong. Jay Lee, number nine is wrong. David Yovichin, number nine is wrong. Ah, oh, here. George Fairchild, you're in. All right, we need one more. Hold on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We need one more. Leo, Leo's, where are you at, Leo? You're wrong. No, 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 no. I can't do that. Who's, who's that? I'm just grabbing one. All right, we need one more. Hold on. I'm just, All right, check it. I'm just, huh? Why was two? All right, we're good. We got it. We got it. It's got 10. it. Got it. Okay, got ten. <laughs> All right, here's. Yeah, all right, let's <laughs> clean that side up. All right, here we go. Here, I need one table representative from each of these tables. Joseph Lopez, your table. Jason Nation, send up one from your table. 
PL, send up one from your table. Steven, Sean, Fred, John, Jeremy, Jeremy, send one up from your table. Jack, send one up from your table. Tweed, send one up from your table. Boswell, Diego, Joel, Michael, Josh, George Fairchild, send one up from your table. And Jimmy, send one up from your table. Come on up here on stage. As you come up here, grab one of these. Grab one. Oh, you're back. Huh? You are. Grab one. Grab one, doesn't matter. Grab one, grab one. There you go. All right, here's what I want you to do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Somebody is not up here. There's two Joels. That is. Well, that was Nation's table, right? You're from. You're from who? And then whose table? Anyway, it's gonna work out. Watch, watch how I do this. Watch how I do this. All right. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one. One's on this side, two's on this side. All right, we're going to quickly. Here. Yeah? Yeah, so one got six, one got five. He said he forgot his number. <laughs> that quick? I'm, con I'm concerned. I'm concerned already. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is... Pastor Jacob, why don't you answer the first, ask the first question. All right. uh, let's go to the score. And you're going to play as a team. So whatever team loses, that whole team is eliminated. We'll get down to five. And we'll make that quick, all right? So Pastor Jacob has a question. When you have the answer or closest to it, discuss it as your team. Raise one of the emojis. If you get it wrong, you're disqualified. Nope. You both get a shot because we need closest if you don't get it. So I'll let him ask the question. But right. losing team, the whole team sits down. Go for it. All right, here we go. What was the final score of the Super Bowl and which team won? Oh, hold on. Joel? That's correct. You guys are gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a fan. You're all out. Yeah, we, you can sit them down, sit them down. <laughs> All right. All right. The six of you line up. The six of you line up. Yeah, this is how we're going to, Sean, you can pick up one now. You've earned one. All right. All right, first one to answer the question, you got to raise it up, and then we'll call on you, and you'll take a step forward if you get it right. If you don't, if you get it wrong, you're out. I'm just, I'm just looking. You're in the center. You're in the center, okay? Where did Jesus say the narrow gate led? Sean. It led to what? Not heaven. The narrow gate leads to 
life. Nathan, step forward. Sean, you're out. I could have phrased that better for you. All right. You step to the side, Nathan. You're, 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 you're good for now. You can rest. Stretch out a little bit. All right, you four. What government rules over the Jews during Jesus' time? Joel, Roman government. Good. Step over. That's quick. All right, Jacob, why don't you throw one out there? All right, next one. Where was Jesus when he turned water into wine? John. You don't get time to say other things. Okay. All right. No. What do you got, James? Yeah. Place where in in Daniel, you got it? Necessary. James, I'll put you over there. He was at a wedding. Cana. Cana. The champ. All right. So here's our three. All right. Good job. So the three of you come over. Come back over here. All right. So we got first, second, third. James, are you playing for MBS? Oh, you. I, whatever. I don't <laughs> Who are you playing for, anymore. James? Who are we playing for? The Narrow. All right. I don't care anymore. You can play. Whatever. <laughs> Ask a question, Jacob. I'm checked All right. out. I'm checked Here we out. go. Next question. Who asked to be given the body of Jesus? Joel got the highest first. Yes. There you Joseph go. Step forward, Joseph. Or Joel, you stay there. All right. This is to continue on. Ask one more question. All right. How many days was Jesus on earth following his resurrection? 40 days. All right, Nathan's out. Nathan, stay to the side. You're third place. All right, this is it right here. Nathan, stay. Don't go too far. Don't go too far. You get third. All right, go ahead and ask. Last one. This is, this is for it all right here. Here it is. Which two disciples were sent to prepare the Last Supper? Slow. Jane. Joel, what do you got? Peter and John is right. Wow. That is right. <laughs> Look at that. Nice work. Joel is the champion. Joel, what ministry are you representing? Thrive. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thrive <laughs> wins. Okay, Thrive wins. Is Pastor Mark even here? Because if he's not here, he does. Huh? What about Nathan? He's in third. Calm down, Jeff Coat. Pastor, go ahead and come he's up here. here, I guess. I guess. What are you holding? Bacon? Bacon. You're going to come up on stage with pork in your mouth? Wow. All right. So humble. All right. Anyway, well, as much as I don't like to do this, um, congratulations, Pastor Mark, and Thrive. Joel, you are our champion. Pastor Mark will hold on to this trophy. as he, Don't share the bacon. That's, that's not good. I mean, he's in your ministry, but he doesn't need to be in your ministry, okay? Let's just keep it at that. All right. Well, we got prizes for you. So, Joel... You get first choice of gift and a book. And then James, second place, great job, who he won last time, so that's impressive. Uh, you get a book, Chick-fil-A gift cards, and then Nathan, you get a book as well. So come on up here. Let's give a round of applause for our guys up here. Great job.
Hey. James says, I have all these books anyway, so no victory speech. Pastor Mark's eating bacon. That's enough. All right. Multitasking. All right. Well, there we go. Bacon Trophy goes to Thrive. Congratulations. All right. Well, we got a great message, and we got PM ready to go over here, and so I'm going to pray so he can come up here and uh, kick off our men's breakfast with uh, leadership of Jesus. So pray with me, and I will invite PM to come up. God, we are so thankful for how you have designed your church. We are so thankful that opportunities like this for us to get together and fellowship and encourage one another, strengthen one another, be edified so that we can be transformed and continue to go out to be salt and light in this world. Lord, thank you for your church and how you have designed it to do that. Lord, we are so grateful to be here this morning as a group of men. Lord, we know that you have given us a role of leadership as men, and we want to take that seriously. So, Lord, as we prepare to hear your word now, help us to listen with prepared hearts to apply this to our lives. Lord, we want to be more like Christ in everything that we do, and this is a great opportunity for us to learn exactly the life of Christ, the leadership of Christ, and how we can emulate our lives and model our lives after it. So, Please be with Pastor Mike as he preaches this message. Uh, open our hearts and prepare us to hear it so that we can apply it and have our lives transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing should be obvious when you're created to lead over things, right? That's called exercising dominion. Man was created to exercise dominion in creation. So even a toddler, right, is a leader in the way he's arranging his toys and organizing things on a table or drawing. He's, he's, he's exercising something that God says that only talk about this semester, or this year, is leading people. And all of us have the responsibility to lead people, uh, regardless of what your role is. Well, I'm not a dad, I'm not a husband, I'm not, even if we got down to someone, I'm not not at all a leader. You are a leader, as Proverbs 27 says, that one man is to sharpen another. Iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. You are supposed to be relational, at the very least. You have no position at all of thinking that you influence people. All of us are called, every single person, to influence other people. To sharpen them is to direct them, right? It's to say, well, we're not here, we should be here, and it's not like this, it should be like that. So every body in this, in this room is created uh, to lead. And of course, I mean, I'm just going to the lowest common denominator, but we can go up from there. Many of you are, are massively uh, effective in leadership because you have positions where you're leading uh, organizations, you're leading businesses, you're leading people, you're a manager, whatever. Uh, and if you're a husband, right, you're a leader, supposed to be the leader in your marriage. If you're a father, you're a leader of children. There's plenty of, of layers of leadership in your life that I hope 
just always flow in and out of your thinking throughout all that you're going to hear this year at our breakfasts about leadership. Now, if you're a Christian, which I hope most of you profess to be, and I hope that you actually are, uh, the Bible's very clear that we are to, uh, to do it better than everyone else. We're supposed to have a different approach to leadership than everyone else. Jesus made that increasingly clear. Uh, we are supposed to lead in a way that is not like everyone else, and our leadership should be better. It should be superior. It should be great. And here's why, as it says in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to abide in him right, ought to walk as Jesus walked. We ought to walk as Jesus walked. We ought to live the way that Jesus lived. And that particular command right, couldn't be more important for us as we think about if I'm going to be a leader in any area, if I'm a leader at work, a leader at home, a leader in relationships, I better learn to do it the way that Jesus did. So uh, uh, Pastor Kellen, uh, his men's ministry may have failed at the competition this morning, uh, but he, he, he succeeded in saying, Pastor Mike, let's start with Jesus as the model of leadership. Uh, so if you just accept in your own mind that God has created me to lead. He saved me to lead better than everyone else, and he should, right? You should see it that way. I'm not, I'm not leading like our next-door neighbors, not leading like non-Christians. We lead better than them. We lead the way that, that God designed us to lead because we're following Jesus' leadership, and Jesus was the most important, most effective uh, leader that ever existed as divinity took on humanity and lived among us. So we're going to study Jesus this morning and his leadership and we want to learn 10 things that we're going, to, we're going to fly through this morning, the things that we can learn about Jesus and leadership. So let's go to our first text. You want to look at this, John chapter 5. We're going to look at two verses here in John chapter 5 as Jesus is teaching us something about how he leads. <clears throat> Here's the first thing. It's maybe a telescopic observation about what I just said, but let's get it down here in our thinking and in our notes this morning. Number one, we're going to deal with this, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever he sets something up like that, he's trying to make sure it's highlighted and it jumps off all the other things that he says. Not that everything that he says isn't critically important, but this is like you just need to catch this and it's going to be revolutionary. It's going to be something that most people don't understand. And he's holding himself up as an example. First John 2, 6, I'm supposed to walk as he walked. He says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. So key. Nothing of my own. It's not about what, what, what I want to do. It's not about doing it my way, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, right, that the Son does likewise. His concern is, right, that I've got to do whatever I'm doing the way that God wants me to do it. Drop down to verse 30. Scroll down to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. I'm going to make a decision. I've got to know what it is that the Father wants. And my judgment is just, it's right, it's righteous, it's good, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Everyone struggles with the condescension of Christ, that he comes and it's called the doctrine of the kenosis. He emptied himself, lays aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. You say, well, it's hard for us. The Jehovah Witnesses jump on that. All the cults jump on that. But the reality is he's providing a way for us, 1 John 2, 6, for us to follow his pattern. And he's living the way that we're supposed to live, independence on the Holy Spirit, under the direction of the Father. And he's saying, watch how I do it. You do it this way. I am a pattern for you. Even getting disciples around him, giving you the word and us the word, not just the first century, but all of us the word disciple means that we're supposed to follow him, follow what he says. The analogies of shepherd, he's the good shepherd. 
We're supposed to hear his voice and follow him. And so we understand that he's giving us in this example, I don't do my will. You think, well, you're the second person of the Godhead. Isn't your will right? Isn't it perfect? Yeah, but he's deferring his will and saying, no, what I want to do is make sure that everything I do, everything I say to the Pharisees, everything I teach my disciples, everything I I decide, everything I prioritize, I want to do it the Father's way. I want to do it God's way. So let's just get that in. When we talk about leadership, you need to right now think when it comes to leadership, number one, you need to decide to lead God's way. And that's so revolutionary. It's more than you think to lead like Christ. That ought to be the only thing you care about. I want to make sure that in, in my leadership, in my friendships, in my uh, relationships, in my home, in my workplace, I need to do whatever I'm doing to influence other people. And that's what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm making some difference with my brain, my intellect, my volition. I'm making decisions. I'm doing things. I'm prioritizing things to affect other people. I want to do that the way God would want me to do it. That's just fundamental. That's not hard to process, but it's important for us to start that way. Jesus is a leader. He's saying, I want to lead the way the Father wants me to lead. I want to lead the way the Father leads, which is the whole point of being made in his image. It's the whole point of dominion. It's the whole point that we are not trees or rocks or animals. We're, we're, we're like God. Right? We're not God, but we're like God in that we're given dominion, just like God has given dominion. We're given some sovereignty, some derived sovereignty over our toy box, over a blank sheet of paper with our crayons when we were kids, then over our paper route, if you're old like me, uh, and and into our jobs and into our relationships. We're we're given dominion that that trees don't have, and we get that dominion because we're made in the image of God, and we should say, I want to do it the way God would do it. So fundamental, basic, but today, it'd be good for you right now to say, okay, if I'm a Christian, this should have been settled the day I became a Christian, but I'm going to decide right now, this whole year, we're going to think about leading and leadership called to lead, particularly as a man, you have certain layers of leadership that other people don't have, just in your gender, and you need to say, I am, as a leader, going to decide right now, I'm going to lead the way God wants me to lead. I'm going to lead God's way, okay? Simple enough? All right, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. <coughs> Look at verse 46 and 47. After three days, they found him. And you know, let me ask you this, since we're giving Bible trivia questions on the platform this morning. How old was Jesus here in this scene when he's at the temple? He's a a kid. He's 12. I want you to think of a 12-year-old. Do you know any 12-year-olds? You got a a niece, a kid, a grandkid, 12. Seen kids out there, 12. He's 12 years old. After three days, okay, they hadn't seen him for three days. They'd left in this big caravan, go back to their home up north, they found him in Jerusalem. They'd come back. They said, where's Jesus? Okay, he's in the temple. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Okay, so he's engaging with the top intellectual leaders regarding the scriptures, and he is asking them questions. And I don't think this was like he's trying to ask gotcha questions to the leaders. But then he's engaging them in dialogue, right? And, and he's listening. And, and not only that, he's pitching in, right? Dr. Moeller's coming this afternoon, going to preach tonight and tomorrow, all that. Um, someone asked, well, that's great. You don't have to preach. Uh, does that feel good? And I said, well, it's almost as hard just to have conversations with Moeller uh, in my office and at my house as it is to prepare a sermon. Um, it is hard. Okay, so when I ask him questions, I really want the answers. Uh, and when he gives me the answers, I go, okay. Uh, that's probably how it was in the 18th century when so-and-so did such-and-such. Um, 
because he knows a lot more than me. And, and it's not fair, because he's not really human. Uh, <laughs> but it's humbling. And I often say he's the smartest man I know. I can talk about anything. I can say, well, you know, I, it's something I know about. I can say, well, you know, ice machines, I love this kind of ice machine. They'll say, well, you know, that company started whatever. You know the other company. You know the guy who started it, don't you? Teach me, Dr. Moeller. Um, but my point is, can you imagine in one slice of information, the Bible, right? Here he is talking with the people that know the Bible the best, the Old Testament the best, and he's there at 12 years old, and he's engaging with them. Now, I brought this up in a sermon not long ago, and I said, we often think, well, of course, you're the son of God, man. You wrote the Bible, right? You wrote the Old Testament. Of course, you know it better. Um, but in the condescension of Christ to become a man and live among us and to take on all the attributes of humanity and lay aside right, the independent exercise of his divine attributes, which meant only when God so allowed it, right, he was able to do things like calm the sea or know, you know that there was someone in the room that was thinking something. But the rest of the time, he's like us. In the sense, he's got to learn. He didn't come out speaking multiple languages, all the languages of the world as a baby. He had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to walk. Think about that one wobbly foot after the next. So at 12 years old, for him to be sitting there and not only asking questions of the top intellectuals in the culture, but being able to contribute to the conversation intelligently meant that he had done a lot in the first 12 years of his life. And let's just face it, the first five years, we don't even know what's going on. So, I mean, he's just had seven years to kind of plow through the knowledge of the scripture. And he was able to converse with the best in the country. And all I'm telling you is that we need to, if we're going to be good leaders and lead God's way, number two, we have to learn to lead God's way. What do, how is God wanting us to lead? Now, I was asked to talk about Jesus's leadership, and you know, thankfully, I've spent a lot of time in the Bible. I was able to go, okay, I, I, can, I can work through that. Um, other people could probably work through it a lot, more, a lot better. And, and, and then you might say, well, if I was asked to teach this morning, I don't know. It would be harder for me. Well, all I'm saying is we better learn what the Bible says, regardless of whether we're saying what's the leadership of Jesus or the leadership of Paul or what are the biblical principles of the leadership of Moses in the Old Testament. You better learn the Bible is what I'm saying. And at 12, Jesus was lapping the average 12-year-old and the average 22-year-old, probably the average 42-year-old, and he's able to, to deal with information that only the PhDs in the country were able to deal with. That was a focused Right? This, isn't a, this isn't just saying, oh, God, just enlighten me, and it just popped in his mind. He learned the Bible. So this is an old saw around here, and I even preached it last weekend. We need to learn the Bible. You need to be in the Bible. I mean, we have a DBR. It takes you seven minutes to read what we, what we ask you to read. Right? But there's more than that. You should do some study. You should do some memorization. You should dig deeper. You should have some books on your shelf. You should have a bookshelf full of books, and you should be reading and studying. Do you see our book store is about to open here? I hope that there's nobody that walks by that and doesn't stop to linger and look through books. I mean, that's why I wanted it here and not way over here, out now, which feels like the back alley. Uh, we want the books for right here. And because we ought to be students of the word. We want to be like Jesus when he was 12 and, and, and learn more and more and more. So you've got to learn all the principles of leadership from the Bible, not to mention every other aspect of our Christian life by studying you got to study what God says. What does it look like to lead? That's just one question within all the topics of Scripture. But that's if we're going to be a good leader, better learn leadership principles from the Bible. Okay, learn to lead God's way. Matthew chapter 26. Let's look at this one. Matthew chapter 26. 
I could look at lots of examples of this, uh, John 17, others, but I, this one's the most familiar, so here it is. Going a little further, a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, if you don't understand the condescension of Christ to come and lay aside his divine attributes and you think about taking on humanity and he did naps, he needed sleep, God never sleeps, right? He needed food. Well, God doesn't need food, Psalm 50, but Jesus needed food. You realize that he's got a set of impulses and desires and wants that, that need to be subjected to and, and arrested under a commitment to God's way to do things. And, and how does he do it? I mentioned John 17. If you know the Bible, you know John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. He's praying. And we know other records in the, in the Gospels where he goes out and he prays. He's always, we don't always know what he prays. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but he's always praying. And we know that when he's praying, even as it's reflected throughout John 17 in the high priestly prayer of Christ, he is praying to make sure that his will is aligned under the will of of the Father. Now think about your leadership. You're a leader. You need to start to identify those areas of leadership and say, I want to just decide. I will lead God's way. I want to do that. I'm a Christian. That's the right thing to do. I need to learn God's way if I'm going to lead God's way. And now I'm saying, you need to commit yourself, number three, to pray to lead God's way. You have to pray about that. You need to pray about it all the time. Why? Because you have impulses that will be in opposition to leading God's way. God's way is not your impulse way. It's not your intuitive way. It's not the way of the world, obviously. It it needs to be clearly in your mind something you pray ahead of time, I am going to do this God's way. You make any, any, uh, I'm trying to buy a car right now, which is a headache, Um, but you're always trying to figure out what's it gonna cost, and you would never go in and say, just give me the car, and I don't care what it costs. I mean, some people do that, but I don't know. They're not here in the room, I'm hoping. Um, when we come to God and we're negotiating, quote unquote, with God, negotiating, um, right? We would like to know what his will is for our lives. And, and the thing that God is always requiring about the will, his wants, his list of desires for us, is making sure that our list of desires are already subjugated to his. And the only way to do that is in a, a relational communication with him, that's called prayer, where I am now saying, I'm learning to, even as I express it, submit my will, my desires to your desires. And that's what will is. That all will means in in Scripture. This word means to want, right? Not what I want, but what you want. What you want, what you desire, needs to be the thing that wins out. And prayer is the way we do that. You got to pray every day, not my will, but yours be done. I need to make sure that it is your will at work, your will as a husband, your will as a father, as a grandparent, whatever your leadership position is, I want to pray that I would see that your way has to win out. And that's only going to be wrestled through in prayer. He's wrestling in prayer. How much so? That his, his sweat is just pouring off of his forehead, right? It, it's, it's pouring off of his forehead. It hadn't changed color. I don't know. That's not my view on this passage. It's that it's dripping off like, like it, as though you know, he were, were bleeding. Uh, and, and the point is, they were such big drops, it was as if he was bleeding. It, that's the kind of, of wrestling in, in pain with God saying, well, if I do it your way, I may not get this promotion. If I do it this your way, I may leave uh, this industry. I may not be accepted here. I may lose my job. Whatever it might be, you have to wrestle with God say, I'm going to lead your way. I'm learning what your way is in the word, and I'm going to tell you in prayer, uh, I will do it your way, and I'm going to relinquish it. God's going to get your fingers off of your desires 
really, it happens so much when you read the word, when you're praying, he's going to get your fingers off of that. And, and that's where you have to say, okay, God, um, not your will, but mine. And Jesus, again, is our example. First John 2, 6. He is our example. He prays, and in tough situations, he has to, he has to fall on his face and pray and say, I, I don't want this, but if this is what you want, I'll do it. Luke 16. Luke 16. I mentioned this, but let's dig into this because you need to see this from God's perspective because every human being you know is going to stand before God one day. Every human being you know will stand before God one day. He's dealing with the leaders of his generation. And if you look at the context here, they're ridiculing him. Pharisees, lovers of money, verse 14, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. In other words, you convince people this is the right way to do it. Now, the desire for them, verse 14, is money. I really want more money. So they lead in a way that, that they're fixed on that goal. We know what his goal is. I want to lead God's way. I'd like to lead the Father's way. And so he says, you're those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. And if you were to have your heart x-rayed, people would see that really, I don't think this is supposed to be about money. Moses didn't teach us to lead because of money. David didn't teach us to lead for money. So uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not God's way to lead. But that's the Pharisees' way in the first century. And he says, you're justifying yourself before men, and, and you're trying to convince them this is the right way. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men, I'm talking here about the domain of the heart and all the things that come out of that, is an abomination in the sight of God. There's not a stronger statement in Scripture, I think, about just looking at why Paul said in Galatians 6, the world is crucified to me and I to it. I'm not really interested in kissing up with, to the world. And I understand, increasingly so in Western culture, that means we're going to be more outcast. We're going to lose more opportunities. We're going to lose more credibility. We're going to lose our reputation in our culture. And it may be in your industry, in your, even in your family, if you're married to a non-Christian gal or whatever it might be, you will lose in many ways. But you're going to have to say, I know that what I'm aligning with is the right thing because the things that are exalted among people are an abomination to God. I put it this way. Number four, you, you need to not care about the world's way. The world's got a lot to say about leadership. You shouldn't care about that. And I'm saying not everything, right? They say, well, you should have your desk organized. Okay, well, that's a principle. It has nothing to do with the morality of why you're leading. And I'm just talking about you need to see when someone says, here's the things you ought to do. We'll dig into this more in a minute. Uh, we just need to say, I'm not really interested in the world's philosophy of leadership. Because in the end, if it's an abomination to God, and I'm more of a pragmatist in my heart, as most of us are, I say, I like that principle because it works. And you saw this, I don't know, and this will maybe hit a nerve with some of you that, that care about things like this, but it, this certainly was the key uh, to, to what was going on in the church growth movement in the 1980s and 90s, right? I mean, if the goal was to fill the church, which, of course, you could look at the Bible and say, well, Jesus' churches were filled, 3,000, 5,000. People kept taking the attendance rolls, and the church kept growing. And they said, well, we want to grow a church. right? Well, here's how we do it, and that's how churches, big mega churches, started right here in Southern California. we got to ask people what they want from church, and then we'll do it. If they want you know, uh, Disney characters dancing on stage and calling it a sermon, right? well, uh, well that's what we'll do, whatever it takes. And we, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, is that a groan? The silence is a groan. That's how I heard it. Or maybe you don't even know it. You don't even know what I'm talking about. Look it up. But I'm not talking about the modern expressions of it, which of course is folly. But the, 
old expressions of it that became the norm. Every church seminar in the 80s was about you know, church growth principles. And all I'm telling you is that you've got to realize it doesn't matter if I can't derive it from Scripture, if I can't see it principalized in the Bible. It's not something that I'm recognizing is often going to grade against my will. If it graded against Jesus' will to do the Father's will, which it did and he had to pray, I subjugate my will to your will, then I'm just telling you. Right? We're going to have to have our, our, our earplugs in when it comes to here's what the world says will work. And we're pragmatists at heart. And all I'm saying is that the pragmatism in our life will be if this is a way that will lead into things that are comfortable or convenient, in this case, the money of the Pharisees, well, then I'm going to do it. And I'll justify it because I'll look at whatever it is, whether it's in the church growth movement, I'll have got more people in my church, or the budgets are bigger, or whatever. What matters is doing it God's way. And it doesn't matter what the world says, and we could just endlessly go through examples of that. But Jesus is telling us here, you need to think in those stark terms, abomination, right? We read through Leviticus, Numbers, talk about, we see all the things that were an abomination to God, right? Don't do this, I'm kicking the, the Canaanites out because this is an abomination to God. And, and we think, oh, well, those are, they were throwing their babies into the fire for Moloch, a false god. But all I'm telling you, he's saying here about the religious leaders of the first century, some of them, this particular group, right? this is an abomination to God. That's just a big word. And I'm just telling you, you need to say, there's a lot of things I'm learning, I learned in school, at USC Business School or whatever, that are an abomination to God. And, and I just need to sort that out and say, that's not, I'm not interested in that. All truth, ultimately, is God's truth, and it's derived from principles that we can comport with the Bible. So I've got to say, I don't care about the world's way, ultimately, because they are pragmatists at heart. And when it comes to leadership, I care about God's way. Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Start to dig into the heart of it here. Maybe you know the context here. You've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, coming up with their mom. It's a lose right there out of the gate. It's adult, adult people coming with their mommy. Um, and you can see, you know, you know, these sons of mine, I want one sitting at your right and your left in your kingdom. There's verse 21. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking for. It goes through all of that. And then we get into the heart of, of, a, of a leadership principle from Jesus. And, and he says in verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers, that's a leader now, you're, you're making decisions and it affects other people. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, the virtue there is power. It was money. In our last text, right, when it came to um, Luke 16, the Pharisees, here it's, it's just power. They love the raw power. And there's so many examples of that in, in first century Rome. And, and, and that's how they do it. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. The goal of leadership should not be that you love being a leader. It should not be that you love exercising authority. It should not be that people jump when you tell them what to do. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great. You want, the, you want the concept of leadership? Well, we got great leaders in the Christian church. We had great leaders in the first century. We got great leaders throughout church history. We have great leaders today. Whoever would be great among you as a leader must be your servant, your servant. And whoever would be first among you, the guy that, that's got the corner office or whatever, the guy who's going to be the head of the household, the guy who's going to be the, 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 the CEO at work, whatever, must be your slave. Those distinctions in words, do you see the, the, uh, 
the, le- the numbers, if you're reading in ESV, the first one, right? I mean, we've, we've started with diakonos, and we've ended with doulos, which is the word for slave, right? My servant and slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he goes back to my example. He says, I have come, left the comforts of heaven to serve you. I'm doing something for your good. And you, as leaders, watch all the leaders of the world wanting to amass more money. Let's just think of the principle of just so I can retire. Think about that. That goal itself is about the goal ultimately for a lot of people's leadership is so that they can coast into their grave. And there's so many principles we could untangle in leadership and say, Jesus says, none of that makes any sense. My leadership, even if I were an elderly person in a convalescent home, right? I'm going to be able to exercise some dominion somehow, to influence people somehow, right? And not from the amassing of, of my wealth or my power or just to do anything for me. That's where I think this principle is, is the, the heart of it all. Number five, we need to lead for the good of those we lead. Lead for the good of those you lead. That's the whole point, right? Jesus said, I'm going to come down and have everyone listen to what I say and follow me, and I'll start this movement around the world called the church, and it'll be, have my name on it, the church of Jesus Christ. I will build my church. It's my church. Why are you? Are you an egomaniac? Is it authority? Do you want money? Well, of course, he doesn't need any of that, but he gives us the example. The whole point is that we're, we're celebrating Jesus as the Lord or the head of the church because he gave up himself for the body. He gave himself up for the people. He did something good for us. We had a need. He met the need. His leadership was about helping. That was the point. Right? And every organization needs a leader. Every company needs a leader. Every division needs a leader, a manager. Every home needs a leader, a father. Right? Every kid needs a leader, a parent. The leadership is for the good of those we lead. That's the point. Right? What's the point? I want to be a leader for what purpose? The only real biblical answer if you're going to lead like Jesus is the reason I'm going to lead is for the good of those I lead. That's the only reason. And if you say, well, I can't wait to, to retire because hopefully I've amassed enough so I don't have to lead anybody, that's not the goal. Into eternity, there will be leaders and your goal should be to want to be a leader. Leading is, is, is the ultimate reflection of Jesus's ministry on earth. He came to lead, but what did that mean? Well, to serve and to give his life as a payment and it was costly. That's why when Paul says in Colossians 1 that we are filling up the afflictions of Christ, right? That's the goal. We are supposed to go through the hardships of leadership so that we might be like Christ because Christ's got more leadership that needs to be dispensed in the world. And, and people don't understand that passage, but Paul says, I'm doing that. I'm willing to lead, which is hard, but it's all for your good. I'm doing all of this for you, all for you in Laodicea, all for you in, in Colossae, and all for those of you who haven't seen my face yet. My whole point is to lead so that you would be benefited. If you start thinking about leadership that way, right? Your middle manager, your supervisor, your board member, you're a CEO, you do whatever you do in your home as a leader. It's all for the good of those you lead. That's the whole point. How can I be helpful for them? And that is the goal. Every organization needs leaders. And that means the household, right? A small group, you're a small group leader, you're a leader. What, why are you leading? For the good of the group. All of it is about leading for the good of the people. And again, what's the contrast in our passage, Matthew 5? That's not how the world thinks. I need to not care about how the world thinks. I need to care about how God thinks. And that's what should matter. That, by the way, I don't know if we're having any discussions today, but whatever, however you pray this through, however you think this through, however this is discussed later, 
This is the core of it right here. The apex is, is right here, number five. This is the definition of Jesus' leadership. I come to lead for the good of those I lead. Luke 17. <coughs> 17 is, um, I'm going to drill down one more layer because the hard thing about that is I am going to feel like in good leadership that I'm a, like a doormat. And, and you've heard the words, and you think about bigger organizations, right? The, it's lonely at the top, right? Um, the, the leadership comes with price tags, and the more you lead, and the more you lead over more and more people or more and more, more things, it, it is increasingly hard, right? And all of a sudden, your flesh is going to say, uh, not only I don't want to do this, but you're going to start to ask yourself, well, what's in it for me? And, and I love the way this passage, it's one of my favorites, in, in uh, Luke 17, he gives this, this illustration. Uh, I, I start in verse 9, but that's the punchline. Let's just give the whole illustration. Well, any one of you, verse 7, Luke 17, 7, who has a servant. And again, th- this is the concept. This is supposed to be my whole, my whole purpose in life, right? I'm supposed to see myself this way. And leadership is all about serving, a servant, doulos. This is the word slave. And some translations will even boldly put it that way. If anyone who has a slave, plowing or keeping sheep, will say to him when he's coming from the field, hey, come at once, recline at the table. No, 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 that's not how it works. Who will make the servant who's out there working come in and say, oh, it's been a hard day, I'm, I'm the master here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve you. No, rather, will he not say, prepare supper for me and dress properly, get yourself cleaned up, you stink from being out in the field, get, get dressed, uh, wash yourself, and then serve me while I eat and drink. Well, I'm the master after all, that's why you're, you're working for me. And afterwards, right, as the servant, you can eat and drink. Verse 9, here's the punchline. Does anyone thank the servant, the slave, because he did what was commanded? Huh, no, that's your, whole, that's your whole purpose. The master said to do it. You're the slave, do it. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done our duty. We've only done that. I love the way the NAS puts it. I've only done that which I ought to have done. I've only done what was, what was required. Um, let's jot down the point. Number six, you need to care less about what's in it for you. And I know we've danced around that, but let's just say it cleanly. Let's care less about what's in it for you. It doesn't matter what's in it for you. There are days when you're going to be tired and fatigued. You have some big, hard schedule. You have to do the hard thing at home, discipline the kids, or whatever it is, stage of life you're in, or you know, give the extra hours, go the extra mile. You're going to do so much, and you're going to say, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and, and God's going to say, wait a minute, I'm the, I'm the master, right? You're my slave, you're my servant. You're supposed to do what I say, and when you do it all, you say, I've only done my duty. I'm not looking here in this context, in this particular context, for anything more than accomplishing the goal. Now, there's more to it than that, and we'll get to that, but I want to start with that. I, I don't really care if, if there's anything in it for me. And you shouldn't ask that. I have people all the time, practical questions asked, well, they're asking me to do this at work, but I don't get a pay bump or whatever. Well, it'd be nice and it'd be good. It'd be just for the leaders of your company to do that. But even if they don't, the biblical principle of leadership is, right, I'm, I'm excited to exercise leadership. I'm, I'm thrilled to exercise. If I can do this for the good of the people I'm, I'm serving. Now, of course, I've got all kinds of people I'm serving, both up and down the chain you know, stockholders or a board or whatever, and the people I'm serving. But the point is, I'm willing to do that 
I need to think less about licking my wounds. It's more overtime. It's more hours. I'm just telling you, in your household, in your church, even church itself is a whole other layer of leadership that the average person in, in your neighborhood doesn't have to do, but you have to do it. And if you say, well, I don't, I have to, all these layers of leadership, domestically, in my workplace, if you're a student doing the kinds of things you're supposed to do there, or in, in your corporate life, you should say, I'm tired or whatever, and, and so I guess the master should, should be pleased. Well, of course, you're just doing your duty. You're doing what you've been asked to do. And at the end of time, if you get yourself rightly understood that you're the servant and he's the master, right? You're the creature, he's the creator. You're the person that's gonna be evaluated and he's the evaluator. Well, then that makes sense. I just do what I'm told. I do what I'm supposed to do. And what he's telling you to do is to creatively, like him, exercise dominion and leadership and lead so that God can be glorified because you've done exactly what you were created to do. And all of us in this room, be easier not to be the head of the household. And some of you are ab, ab, abdicating your role as a leader in your household because it's too much work because your, your wife's too difficult to deal with. Well, too bad. And it's going to be hard for you to lead and lead well and lead with finesse and lead diplomatically and lead in a way you're supposed to lead. But you've got to step up. You've got to man up and you have to lead because that's what God asks you to do. And at the end of the day, you shouldn't expect a party. You should say, I've only done that which I ought to have done. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. So when you have done all that you were commanded, say we're unworthy slaves, unworthy servants. We've, we've only done what was our duty. This is your duty to lead. And uh, some of you providentially can look at your life and you have titles and you have places where you lead. This is your duty. You're the you're a small group leader. I've done it for years. I don't want to keep doing this. Do the work that God has called you to do. Not that there's not a time to change ministries, but this is so important. If you could just take what's in it for you and put that way down, on the list of, of importance, that would be super, super helpful to reflecting Jesus's leadership. All right. Now, of course, he says this in a lot of different places, but let me take you outside the Gospels for the first time and, and take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because I think this summarizes well what Jesus has said in every parable about stewardship, but it's put in a sentence. I could tell the long stories of Christ, but he's teaching this principle right here. So important. First Corinthians chapter 4, the punchline is verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? They were motivated by money and, and, and the Gentiles motivated by power, right? And a lot of that is under the surface, but God's going to bring all that to, to light in the Dots are going to be connected between motive and action. And he says, God's going to uncover all of that. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, of course, the context is he's trying to say, I, I don't have anything against myself. I think I'm doing this right. My conscience is clear, all the rest. And, and so he's concerned about his commendation, not his condemnation, right? Not the bema seat loss, not the tears of having my life be filled with wood, hay, and straw, we're talking about condemnation of hell. We're talking about God's evaluation of my life. And if I've done this right, and God looks in my heart, looks at my motives, look at what I'm doing, and, and he sees me leading, that's our theme, the way that we're supposed to, he says each will receive his commendation from God. Now, does that fly in the face of Luke 17? Well, I, I guess it does, in the sense that Luke 17 is trying to say, if you do every single thing you're called to do, you ought to say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done our duty. I've only done what I'm supposed to do. I've done what you assigned. And yet that's not the way God works. 
Right? God says, yeah, that should be your core expectation, but know this, there's another expectation I can put in your life, and it, it's a layer on top of you saying, I'm, unwor I'm an unworthy servant. Grace will lead you to think like that, right? And your exaltation of God's attributes will make you think like this. He's going to commend his servants. He's going to say to his servants, you've done a good job. So I want to, number six, or number seven rather, I want to desire God's approval. I want his approval. Even though I know he shouldn't have to say thank you, but he does. This is a reflection not of you. You're the unworthy servant. This is a reflection of him. He's amazingly not only gracious, right, but he's, he's pouring on us the kind of favor that, that, that we're going to so enjoy, and you should want to please him. And that's part of, I guess, built into the phrase, we've only done our duty. When, a, when, a, when an employee of yours does his duty and does it well, right, you, you do feel like you'd like to say, that's good, you've done a good job. But even if they don't do it, you should be able to say, well, at least they've done what they're supposed to. That's what we're hiring them for. And God's giving you breath so that you can lead. And if you do it, do it super well this week, God's going to go, there. well, you, you, of course, you're an unworthy servant. But that's not all that he does. On top of that, his grace is going to say, I will commend you. Right? There will be a commendation for you. And, and we can go back to those verses, right? God is going to give his uh, approval. That's what I'm getting at here. Number seven, God's approval, right? We are going to hear from, from the Lord, I trust, well done, good and faithful servant, although that's not the way it's always going to work. A lot of leaders heard the story this week about a couple of leaders. I've heard it before, but big leaders, high-profile leaders ask the question, do you think you're going to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant? And these top leaders were saying, I'm not sure, I don't think so. And, and, and so many people in the pew think they're going to hear, yeah, of course. Well, I think the more you traffic in the word of God, the more you see our duty, and the more you see your duty the more you recognize we fall short of our duty, and then it starts to make you wonder, will I even hear that? I tell you what, not everyone's going to hear it, but I want to strive to hear it. I want to desire to hear it. I want to hear it, and that's going to be part of the motivation of my leadership. I would like to do it. It's the thing that drives me into overtime. It drives me into working harder. It drives me into not responding you know, uh, with, with, with retaliation. It's a lot of things happen in both restraint and fuel because I'd like God to say, you did a good job. And, and, and that should be the desire of our heart, the commendation from God. I use this instead of the classic text I could use from Christ because I like the word that Paul uses to describe what Jesus taught. Right? The master is going to commend the servants. Right? Well done. That's a commendation. We want to hear that and all that goes with it. And all that goes with it, back to Jesus' teaching, Luke chapter 19. So many passages on this. I should write more on this. This is a... Uh, theme that's often overlooked. They preach this concept in churches where they're well taught, but this is new to them. They don't understand so much in the scripture about this. Here's the line that I quoted that we always think of, Luke 19, 17, and he said to them, well done, good servant. Right? We think about parallel passages, good and faithful servant. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you should say you're an unworthy slave, you've only done that. But no, that's not how it works. Not only does God commend you when he doesn't need to, but he rewards you. You shall have authority over 10 cities. Again, I want to remind you, leadership is not a punishment. Leadership is a reward. You're called to be a leader, and you get to, to dispense that in a sinful world. One day you'll be rewarded with leadership in a perfect world, and that's going to be even better. And all I'm telling you is, 
we should say to ourselves, I not only want his approval, number eight, I should desire his, his rewards. And this becomes absolutely controversial, even in evangelical churches, because they've never been taught how often Jesus talks about rewards. He is motivating with rewards. I guess I did write about this in, in that book I wrote on the afterlife, uh, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. I had a couple chapters in there that dealt with rewards. And in that book, <coughs> I, I tried to uh, illustrate it with, if I'm motivating my kids to get good grades, and I say to them, I want you to work hard, right? You've got to stay up late, you've got to finish your papers, you've got to work hard, you've got to study, you've got to get good, good grades. Um, I'm going to give you a big pool party, pizza, you know, music, your friends. It, I, I'm going to pull out all the stops. I'm going to give all kinds of, of gifts to them. I'm going to give you the best party at the end of the semester if you just pull off a good grade here. If I were to say that uh, to people, my kids, let's say, uh, and they said, I don't, want your, I don't want your rewards. I will throw the pizza back at your feet, right? Uh, I don't want those. You, that's not a virtue, right? That's an offense to me because I'm using the reward, the celebratory reward, which maybe I'm going to even engage in myself or at least watch through the window and think this is great. I, I, I will find joy in rewarding the hard work of my kids to do what I ask them to do. God says you should, as a core response, think I'm an unworthy servant. I'm only doing what I'm supposed to do. But then he says, I'm going to commend you if you do a good job, and I'm going to reward you if you do a good job not only with authority, he's going to give authority to those of you who lead well. He's also going to give riches to those of you that lead well. He's also going to give relationship and reputation and real estate, more real estate to those of you that, that, that lead well. This is real. Go all throughout the New Testament and look at all of the doctrine of the rewards for those who are saved. They're all in varying degrees based on your faithfulness. You're a leader. That's our, our slice of the pie we're looking at this year in our men's breakfast. How you lead will be rewarded, and you should, I know this is the controversial verb in the sentence here, desire that. You should say, I want that, right? And, and I don't want to serve him for the crass greediness of wanting reward, okay? That's like my kids saying, I don't want to stay up later and at all bring to mind that pizza party, that pool party that was promised to me because I, that's just wrong. That's selfish. Or they say, uh, you know, I've read that passage in the Bible where all those the elders, they, they all throw their crowns at Jesus' feet. Remember that passage, right? And, and then what do you think is going to happen, right? Even if that analogy, which is basically saying this unworthy servant concept is overwhelming me that I don't deserve it, and, and I'm just going to throw back the rewards. And a crown is one of the ways it's described in Scripture. It represents all the rewards that God's going to give. And they throw it back at his feet. Do you think he asked the angels to come by and sweep it all up and throw it in the dumpster out back? What do you think happens to the crowns? Just in the analogy, I know this is just a picture, a symbolic, you know, apocalyptic picture of the eternal state. The crowns were granted by the Lord. The Lord grants them this authority. God gives them this reputation. And there they are, and in worship, they take off their crowns in this, this scene, this vision, and throw it at his feet. What do you think he does? He does the same thing he did when he gave them. He finds great joy in putting the crown back on their head, of course. This is what he is giving them, and he's motivated them with it. This is their reward. Taking the pizza and throwing it in the trash does not honor the Lord. And you need to understand, for you to say, I'm not serving for the reward. You should desire the reward just like you desire the commendation. Oh, I know at the core, if you understand grace, you deserve nothing. 
but God finds great joy in being generous. Don't you? Did you like giving gifts to your little kids at Christmas? And did you sit back and say, well, they didn't give me much, man. I got a, I got a, I got a coloring sheet, right? <laughs> you didn't think that way. You found great joy in that. Why? Because you're this big guy with a wallet and there's this little kid with, with, a, with a piggy bank, right? You, you love to lavish that on your children. You find joy. And you somehow are sitting there like a kid, right, with a piggy bank going, well, I don't want his rewards. You better want his rewards. They ought to motivate you. So I know this is a bit controversial for some, but I would invite you to, to read that book, if none others. I don't know. There's a few out there, but you need to be motivated. When I say that book, my book, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife, and sections there, uh, chapters on rewards. You need to think about rewards, and they need to motivate you. And I want you to say, I'm going to be a good leader this week, this month, this year. I'm going to be a better leader because I know not only do I get to say, this is grace that I would even get to, to serve and do his instructions, but he's going to commend me and he's going to reward me. I want those to motivate me. Well done. Here's your gifts. That's a good thing. Desire God's rewards. John 5. John 5. <coughs> John 5. Jesus is healing here. It's the Sabbath. You know what the word Sabbath means? Rest, right? Now, rest became uh, something demanded by God. Not only was it a pattern before 1445, but in 1445, the Mosaic Law it became a ceremonial sign of the covenant between God and his people. So it became now a religious day of, of observing God, and everyone's supposed to rest, and every animal, right? You couldn't work your, your oxen on that day. Um, and of course, they had taken it, the rabbis, to an extreme level about how far you could walk and you know, all the things you could and couldn't do, and you've heard those sermons, I hope, but it became ridiculous during the time of Christ, and, and so here is a healing. This guy comes up, and uh, Jesus heals him, and um, he goes and he tells people, what am I in, verse 15? Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this is why the Jews, verse 16, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, like right up to the present moment, and I am working, right? God is working, I am working. I just think that's a good principle of Jesus. When people thought you should take a break, like in Mark, we read it not long ago in our DBR, his family was outside saying, you're crazy. We, you, gotta, you just gotta slow down. And Jesus looks around at all the people he's teaching. He says, well, who are my mother and brothers? Because they said, your mother and brother are outside. They want to talk to you. He's like, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm going to keep working, right? It wasn't that they, you know, well, there's a lot of motives, I think, involved in this. But the point is, uh, they wanted him to stop doing all of this. Even when Jesus went across the lake and took a, took a break, and he said to his disciples, we're going to go across the lake, he finds people there that are helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, and he stands up and continues to teach them. Why? Because his leadership was his dominant identification, which is servant leadership, which is if there's a need, I'm going to meet it. I'm going to be a leader and exercise my mind, my will, my volition, my brain, my intellect to try and help these people arrange and organize, in this case, their minds toward the gospel, toward God. I want to help how God has gifted me. I want to help. And so my leadership right, is going to be demanded when a lot of other people are going to be busy doing stuff that is not demanding. And, and, and he's working. He's always working. Here's what I can say about you. You probably won't get the commendation of God, 
and you won't get the rewards of God if you are a lazy person. So let's just add this layer. Maybe someone else can develop it throughout our, our series on this, but you should never, number nine, get lazy. You get lazy, you won't be a good leader, right? As a matter of fact, some of you don't want to be leaders because you're lazy. You say, I don't, I don't want to get promoted. I don't want to lead. I don't want that. And you need to think about what you're saying. Why? Because I don't want the hassle. That's, that's not the point. The point is, are you capable of helping in that role? If you're capable of helping in that role, and you really think objectively, and your boss thinks that or whatever, then you need to say, okay, is there a reason I wouldn't? Well, maybe I have leadership over here at the home, or maybe I have leadership over here at the church. Maybe it's good to say no to this leadership. There's reasons, I get it. But all of it should be based on your leadership. You are leading, and you need to make decisions about where to lead, not based on whether or not it's going to take away from my, my Pokemon time or what I don't know, whatever you're doing with your time, right? Do the work. Do the work, right? Night is coming. Jesus said, I'm working, why? We must work while it's day. Night is coming when no man can work. And the time, the buzzer's gonna go off. You're gonna have a stroke, you're gonna have a heart attack, you're gonna get hit by a car, you're gonna, you're gonna die. And before you know it, you're gonna be dead. And, and the point is, you better lead all you can until you get there. And is there a time to take a break? Of course, of course. Jesus was not, was not you know, thatching the roof of his house on, on the Sabbath. There was a time to stop. That was even pre-Mosaic principle, right? Just take some rest. You gotta take a day of rest. Right? Not three, you take, you take one and you get back to work. And as I've said many times from this platform, we do not work so we can rest. That's the model, by the way, of retirement. I work so I can rest. That's not the goal. I rest so that I can work. That's the reason we are resting. The Bible says we rest the oxen so we can get to work on the next day. And we rest the servants so we can get to work on the next day. We rest your mind so we can get to work on the next day. And then we add that whole layer of the Mosaic law. We get a principle there that is fulfilled in Christ, Hebrews 4 you're a Sabbatarian, you're, you're wrong, and we can deal with that in, in, in Hebrews 4. Sorry. Um, whenever you deal with the Sabbath, you've got to talk about that. Don't be lazy. It's kind of like the, the second point. You've got you to study the Bible, right? I know you hear that all the time, and part of it you don't like. Why? Because your flesh is going to grate against it? Well, we can go back to number three then. I, I've got to be praying. Not my will, but yours be done. I have to say, my, sometimes I want rest. I don't want the promotion. I don't want the job. I don't want to have another kid. I don't want to take on that small group. I don't want to teach that class. I don't want to go to revival and help and drive a boat. I don't know, whatever your thing is, I don't want to do that. If it's about the fact that I just don't want the work, you just need to rethink that. I mean, your life is going to be over. Think about that. Well, I mean, all that matters is, is what you're doing, right? what you're doing for the Lord because you love him and you're glorifying him in your work. Desire is rewards, desire is approval, and all of that's never going to comport with laziness. Don't be lazy. 1 John chapter 3, Jesus is our example here. John is the one who's saying it, again, outside the Gospels. But let's look at this as it summarizes what Jesus' life was all about and then drives it into the practicalities. This is number 10. John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he, we're talking about Christ, laid down his life for us. You can think back to John 15, right? No greater love is anyone than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Or as Jesus said, we quoted this one, I didn't come to serve, came to, to, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So he's, he's, he's sacrificing. That's what love is. Love is not a feeling you get, right? Love is a, is, is a motivation to help other people and the sacrifice that comes with it is paid without trouble, right? And, and can that be romantic? Sure it can Right? Like we Laban and Jacob, you remember the story, he, the seven years were like just, a, a, just no time. 
because his love for her. You work and sacrifice because you love, right? And, and I'm not saying that can't overlap and, and, you know, eros and phileo and agape, but the point is it's sacrifice because I want to do good. He laid down his life for us. And we then ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Even if it's just iron sharpening iron, you ought to take that meeting, you ought to go through partners, you ought to sit down and, and lead in, in lives, even if it's just one life for the, for the brothers. And, and, and then you're going to find needs, right? I'm so glad our fix-it ministry, I think, to, is, is today for fix-it ministry going, going on today? It's so good, not just on campus, but I know groups spread out and go and help people, our shut-ins or our widows or whatever. This is a ministry, right, that looks at a need and says, if the need is like pulsating, here's a need right here. Well, we meet it because that's what Christ did. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, some of you know how to do stuff other people don't. I remember a widow in our house, old gal, a widow in our house, in our church, right, couldn't even turn on the sprinklers after her husband died. And I remember going to this 90-year-old lady's house and just helping her turn the sprinklers on. And, and it's like, I could do something that she couldn't do. She didn't know how to do it. That's, that's, that's the Christ-like leadership. I'm doing good for someone. If anyone has the world's good, sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him. If you say, no, I'm not motivated to, to help them. How does God's love abide in him? Of course, God's love was perfected in Christ. It was shown in Christ. And all of that was sacrifice. And he did it. We had a sacrifice for the brothers. You cannot see a need and not meet. Let us not love, and this is how we're so good in, in, in verse 18 at talking about it, right? Let's not love in, in, in word, in our talk, but in deed and in truth. And truth means it's not about me. It's not about power. It's not about money. It's not about what's in it for me. It's about helping and making my help helpful. And sometimes it's on a basis of, 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 of 10 people in your home. Sometimes it's the basis of, of your family itself, four or five people in your household. Sometimes it's on the basis of, of, of sub-congregations and, and, and dozens or hundreds. And, and sometimes it's in some company or whatever. It's thousands, whatever it is. You are called to, to, to do this because you love. And love isn't always a, a warm, green feeling, but it is something that I, I connect with God seeing a need in sinners and Christ being willing to lay down his life for sinners, I'm willing to lay down my life for them because I'm motivated by what the Bible would call love. Or maybe even a better passage. This isn't on the, on the PowerPoint. Before I say the 10th point, go to Philippians 2. I quote this all the time, but it, it's so good. And, and this is a different way to say love. Love is such an abused word. Let's just get it here. Verse 19, Philippians 2.19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be, here it is, genuinely concerned for your welfare. You want to define biblically the word love? There it is. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. I'm genuinely concerned that you're doing okay, right? I'm the pastor of this church because I'm genuinely concerned, at least on my best days, I'm genuinely concerned for the welfare of this church. So I take a leadership position. And this is the things that, this is what we do in whatever the context is. For they all, here's the problem, and this is, this is the, the, the Achilles heel of leadership, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. And there is a great little schematic we just built. If you're concerned about the interests of Christ, you're going to be concerned about the interests of people. If you're concerned about the interests of people, right, you're going to lead and it's going to be costly, but it's got to be motivated by love, defined in this passage as genuine concern for the other person's welfare. It doesn't get better than that. I mean, that's it. Number 10, let's just put it down that way. Get motivated by real concern, real concern. And if you don't have that, I guess we need prayer, not only to subjugate my will to God's will, but I need to start praying for people. 
You want to learn to love people. Even, even people you have a hard time getting on, pray for them. Pray for them every day. Pray for them for more than two minutes. You pray, you'll generate concern. And all I'm telling you is that that's the thing the Bible would say, and though the world doesn't understand the word, that's, what, that's the love that motivates laying down our lives and the costly leadership that we have. All right, I've gone over time. Ten things, Christ's leadership. I hope it's helpful.